We all agree that something should be done to help people who are worse off in this society and that there's a racial correlation that's super strong and not accidental in this country as to where most of the wealth is. But then what do you do? If there is a proposal that says, here's a way that we can invest particularly in education and in the futures of people, I would be in favor of that given the context that we've all inherited. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Before we get into anything, I want to make a few announcements. Number one is we have this new podcast as part of our network called the Daisy Crime Podcast. It's all about true crime that happens in India and throughout South Asia. Some riveting stuff and some stories that I bet you've never heard before. Uh, second is we have our new show, Corey's show, called Stitch This. We just uh, released it this week, and every week he interviews somebody who's super successful on TikTok, but also people who have just cool things to say about life in general and their professions. And then finally, we have our newsletter. You can go to Substack and search for the Lost Debate newsletter. And uh, we're covering one issue a week, but also giving you access to show notes and other backup material for this show. Last week, we talked about myths around the Second Amendment. And this week, we're going to be talking about the San Francisco DA recall and diving into what the meaning of all of that is. And with that, Corey, where we're going to start. On today's show, we'll place our wagers on whether or not it's a good idea to bring casinos to New York City. Then we'll update you on a free speech controversy at Georgetown and the latest on bipartisan talks on federal gun reform. We'll debate California's reparations task force and how America should go about redressing the legacy of slavery. And we'll give you this week's wild idea from Ravi. But first things first, San Francisco voters are ousting progressive district attorney Chesa Boudin after a heated recall that may forecast similar trouble for like-minded DA around the country. Ravi, you've been covering all these recall votes in the Bay Area. How did it all come to this? Well, yeah, to update new listeners, especially we've been covering a lot of trends happening in San Francisco because we feel like in many ways it's a laboratory for a certain uh, deep a strain of progressivism. So we talked about the school board recall a few months ago and we did an episode of Regresses where we dove in and interviewed parents, educators, activists, and even the school board chair who was uh, successfully recalled. And uh, we also covered homelessness in a segment in San Francisco about how extreme that issue there was. We also interviewed Connor Doherty from the New York Times about how San Francisco is horrible at building housing density and how that's led to runaway costs of living. And essentially, the conclusion I have, and I think most people, you know, including, I guess, some a lot of San Francisco voters have, is that this is a broken city in many ways. And they have, you can almost pick any public policy issue, and they've gotten it wrong. And they didn't just get it wrong in some accidental kind of random ways. They got things wrong largely because they implement a certain kind of affluent progressivism that I think we can say largely isn't working for the people of San Francisco. And we're covering it in depth because we think this might not be working for a lot of people around the country as people start to test these ideas. And so I think when you look at Chase Boudin, who uh, was a, what we would call like a reformer DA, what they call progressive DAs, uh, he was somebody who pushed a, a series of policies. He was upfront about them to his credit when he ran. Things like uh, de-emphasizing quality of life prosecutions, de-emphasizing drug prosecutions, not taking into account people's prior record when sentencing them, uh, ending cash bail, ending gang enhancements, uh, not uh, you know confiscating guns or, or charging people for gun crimes during traffic stops. You can, you can go on from here. He definitely pushed a lot of revolutionary policies, and I think the voters of uh, San Francisco 
said, well, we don't like the effect of these policies. Yeah, but Boudin largely blames his recall effort on outside GOP billionaires, or at least that's what he says. How true is any of that? That's, I think, pretty hard to believe because you can't vote in a recall election unless you live in San Francisco. And in San Francisco, it's 6.7% Republican. So while, yes, the right-wing news covered what was happening in San Francisco quite a lot and also the issues that he was having, I think people were seeing with their own eyes what was happening on the streets. Um, 53% of San Francisco residents strongly approved of him 18 percent somewhat disapprove 65 percent feel less safe since 2019 when he started and policing was the number one area that voters wanted to increase spending on and so this is essentially the inverse of what he was doing and you know he was elected in 2019 in an off-year election with low turnout and i think a lot of people are just saying wait no this is either not what i thought i was voting for or i had nothing to do with this and this needs to stop there's definitely some pushback to the progressive policies but there was money being poured into this from, from yeah. outside yeah. of Yeah, so to be clear, he definitely was outspent, but he and other progressive DA candidates have no problem taking money from billionaires that are friendly to them. So George Soros has poured something like $40 million into campaigns for progressive DAs around the country. And Chase Boudin himself has taken money, like for instance, $100,000 uh, for for you know opposition to the recall from a crypto billionaire named Chris Larson. He's quick to trot out people who don't live in San Francisco who are like celebrity figures like John Legend to back him up. So he, he, has, he has touted outside support himself as has have many other of these so-called progressive DAs before. Now, to be clear, tons of business interests, tons of Silicon Valley interests were lining up against him, but it wasn't just those people. It was small business mm-hmm. owners. Yeah. It was actual liberals who live in the city who are fed up with this independence. You can go down the list. There are people victims of crimes, their families, like people are fed up. And, and there was a really interesting interview of Chase Boudin a couple days ago, right before the election by the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, in which he went on this sort of thing about how this is some kind of like, he was likening it to Trump level misinformation happening and all that. And the interviewer, to, to their credit, read a comment from a reader to Chase Boudin, and this was the comment, he, um, quote, he seems to just want to dismiss us all, meaning our critics as Republicans. His arrogance and unwillingness to try and understand the perspectives of middle-class moderate San Francisco's has only augmented our desire to oust them. And you can, we'll link to this interview in the show notes. He basically twisted himself, Chase, in a into a pretzel after this comment, could not address it, because I think this is the sentiment of most people on the ground. And as we'll get into, the crime data is really mixed, but in the ways that people are seeing on the streets every day, it's not mixed. And people are seeing a fundamentally different city in San Francisco now than 10, 20, 30 years ago, and they're reacting really harshly to it. It seems as if crime overall has fallen since Boudin took office back in January of 2020. But burglaries have went up 45% in the last two years. Homicides rose by 37% in that same period. I lived in San Francisco about about 10 years ago, roughly. I lived there for about two and a half years. And one thing that I remember going on there at that time that's still a huge problem was just the amount of break-ins with people's cars. Every morning you would get up and just see glass strewn across the sidewalk to the point where they called it uh, street diamonds. Um, that's what they refer to it as, street diamonds. But, but, but a lot of, I mean, the crime is definitely up. Fentanyl overdoses killed more people in San Francisco than COVID-19 over the last year. So they're having a lot of problems and clearly they didn't feel like this DA was doing enough to really address the issue. Right. Yeah. So people who support Boudin will point to some of the data you talked about, which is that overall reported crime, and I emphasize reported crime has fallen in the city, including though things like rapes and assaults that people tend to report. Uh, and 
he has also filed criminal charges at a rate similar to his predecessor. So those are the data points that Boudin supporters will point to. What his critics will say is, number one, that there's a difference between reported crime and actual crime, especially on some of the stuff that Boudin signaled he wasn't going to prosecute. So things like certain low-level property crime that not only Boudin has said that he was he wasn't going to prosecute, but the state has passed laws. There's this Proposition 47 that basically says anything $950 or below in theft is a misdemeanor, which largely led to a lot of people not taking seriously in law enforcement those types of crimes. You talked about the increase in homicides. You talked about the increase in property crimes. The property crime stuff is amazing. Like San Francisco is basically seeing a level of property crime that almost no major American city has seen in this period of time. And a lot of the American cities and most of society, a lot of these crimes were on the decrease while they were significantly increasing in San Francisco. And if you read any of these articles, it's horrendous what some people are going through. I remember this anecdote of this uh, guy who, you know, longtime San Franciscan who opened up a sneaker store and he kept, it was almost like a comedy. Like he kept erecting new barriers to people breaking in. And it was almost like the, by the end of it is like the Thomas Crown affair. Like where there are people like shimmying up the building and down in and like, you know, you look at this and you say, all right, people need to make a living. Whether you're a liberal or not, you believe that people should be able to get paid for the things that they sell or should feel safe on the streets. Like that's not a left or a right thing. It shouldn't be. It should just be about common humanity. Another important statistic to bring up is how convictions have actually worked out because obviously you can't blame a DA for all the crimes that happen, but convictions have dropped from 60% to 39% in his time in office. And of course, you don't want it to be too high, but also too low is potentially very dangerous. And there have been so many examples of people getting out because of Boudin and then doing heinous things. And we know one or two, sure, like hindsight is twenty twenty, and you want to give people the chance to redeem themselves. But like there was recently an example, Kelvin Chu is 19 years old. He was killed um, two months after a felon was released for 11 felony firearm charges with a slap on the wrist and an ankle monitor by Boudin. And then this 19 year old is killed or a cab driver was bludgeoned with a pipe to death. Um, and the Boudin's office got it down down to involuntary manslaughter and the guy got off on time served. Like there are things that are unimaginable. There are multiple instances where uh, Boudin has said, oh, well, the reason that this happened is because the family of the victim said that they were okay with this. And there are multiple reports from families of victims that have said that's actually not the case. I'm not okay with this. You know, one of you know the prominent prosecutors, you know, he's lost a lot of people. I think something like 40% of the lawyers in his office have left uh, since he's been there. And I think this speaks to a matter of competence. Like one of my reads on him, which was true of the school board as well, is that they will have these bold ideas, but they don't want to see them through. They don't want to put in the effort to actually make these policies work. And one lawyer who left said the following about Chase Boudin, said that Chase has a belief that your approach should be defendant-centered and that everything should revolve around what's best for the defendants. He's never let go of his role as a public defender. And so here you have somebody who wasn't a prosecutor before he came in the office uh, and who... Uh, um, thinks about defendants, you know, and his personal story actually uh, dovetails with this. His parents were part of the um, Weather Underground, um, you know, radical movement, and spent their, you know, basically chased his entire life in prison. So he's somebody who one could imagine thinks more about the defendants than the victims. The problem is he's in a prosecutor's role now, and you don't have to like, 
you don't you don't have to be you don't have to have animus towards every defendant. You can be you know you could serve the interests of justice, but you can't be a defendant advocate. We already we have those people, and that, those people are called public defenders. And you should be in a public defender's office if that's how if that's your worldview and who you want to serve. But is San Francisco an outlier here? Because there are progressive district attorneys like Kim Fox in Chicago, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore, and others who have survived electoral challenges. So is this just this one individual's you know just bad job performance or is this a referendum against progressive DAs in general in America? I think he's so extreme and so explicitly just like out there with what he's going to do that it's not surprising to me that he's the first to be recalled here. But I would say given the the voter base and how progressive San Francisco tends to be, this is a pretty strong referendum. And I think, you know, for me personally, one of the issues that I have is I don't really feel like DAs should be the arbiter of what laws that legislators put on the books should be applied. I think that there are a lot of unnecessarily punitive laws that legislators should be looking over. And I think maybe there's like a sunset clause on some sort of things, or there's every once in a while you need, like local lawmakers need to think you know, do we still want to have this on the books? And that would be a really important conversation. But the idea that one guy in an in a off-year election can just come in and decide these laws are going to happen and these ones aren't. And you know, like a small portion of one city voted for me and therefore I have all that power is just ridiculous. The challenge I think for some of these DAs though is that they have limited resources. So they have to decide, all right, I can't prosecute all crimes, especially when the legislators are hamstringing them with, you know, certain new rules that, you know, increase their discovery obligations and things like that. I think like to answer the question of the trends here, I think this is not just an, a trend involving district attorney races, which we'll see with Gascon in uh, Los Angeles, who's a, I think in a matter of weeks, we'll find out whether he'll be subject to a recall vote or not. I think a lot of the people pushing for that recall seem pretty confident that they're going to get there. It's very similar policies, very similar backlash. Basically, you're seeing this pattern of progressives pushing for um, like either like super platinitudinal uh, vague policies that they don't really have a plan to implement or like I would say pretty extreme policies that have not yet been implemented that they're trying to implement all at once like Boudin did. Um, but what I think the big trend here is that instead of addressing the criticisms, listening to voters, learning what's going on on the ground, a lot of these progressive politicians, whether they're DA candidates or mayors or city council people, et cetera, they dig in and call any critic, a, you know, right wing person, you know, a tech billionaire, et cetera. And they're not listening to the average voter. And I think people are getting frustrated. And if they don't start listening, they're going to continue to get clobbered in the, at the ballot box. And I think that's going to affect the overall efforts of progressives to do even more moderate things. We'll have to keep an eye out on that. State lawmakers are set to license three, three full-scale casinos in the New York City area, ensuring once and for all that the city that never sleeps can go and gamble as long as they're awake anyways. Advocates say the industry will provide tons of tax revenue while critics worry about the impact from crime to gambling addiction. Ricky, are you pulling for the Times Square location or what? <laughs> this is something that I'm just like super neutral on because I don't really feel like it's the government's job to be like, uh, what is it, 500 million per license to decide if a business that either is going to work out or flop can exist. I mean, I'm not a gambler. I don't really think that's a good life choice for most people. But, um, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, 
Sure, why not? And Eric Adams wants two in the um, five New York City boroughs. Yeah, back in April, the the legislator here approved three full-serve casinos in New York City. Uh, I think back in 2014, the voters provided for a constitutional amendment that would uh, allow up to seven new casinos being built here. But there was a focus on putting the first four in upstate New York to drive up, you know, uh, tourism and things politics. there. And, and politics of it all. So Hochul and lawmakers actually changed that provision earlier to make sure that New York City could be open to getting these casinos. Currently, right now, there's only one casino-like option in the five boroughs. It's the Results World facility at the Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens. Queens is the perfect place for something like that, given the fact I live there, so I can say that. Um, but this place has a, a racehorse track and the slot machines, but it doesn't have the, the table games. And I feel like if you can't play blackjack, you're not a real casino. Well, I'm just wondering why we're regulating vice in this way, right? So, you know, the numbers here are pretty compelling about the American public's relationship with gambling generally. So 85% of Americans have gambled at least once, 60% in the past year. In 2018, Gallup asked Americans and 69% said that gambling is morally acceptable. So I think people are pretty clear on their beliefs about this. Why is it that the government is deciding, all right, like I'm going to give it to a huge corporation, which is essentially going to happen here. It's like inevitable. Mm -hmm. Why isn't this like a more um, disaggregated environment where, you know, of course you could still regulate it. You could say people who can't be cheated, they should be, we should be transparent about what the mm -hmm. odds are, et cetera. Like, why aren't there more casinos, period? And, and as a taxpayer of New York, as I've talked about, like we, you know, our government loves to spend money. Uh, so I'm generally for any revenue generators. I'm just not sure this is the best way to do it, like a yeah. 500 plus million dollar license, you know, ensuring that's a big corporation coming in, you know, these debates about, is it for, you know, are we're gatekeeping? Is it gonna be for lower income? Is it gonna be for upper income? I'm like, this is the kind of stuff people should be making their mind up, right? The government's yeah. running lotteries, by the way, yeah. which essentially is it's like, the odds are terrible. You might as well light your money on fire. So it's like, why is it okay for them to do that, but the average person can't set up a shingle and do that? Yeah, and one of the major uh, critiques of this move on the New York lawmakers' part is that it might not bring in a ton of tax revenue. There was a an analogous case in Boston where it hasn't really been as profitable as it was um, supposed to be. But then again, like I'm all, I'm okay with businesses failing. I don't think that the the idea of whether you can open a business in a city is whether you'll make the city money. This is your enterprise. And I think the barrier to entry in terms of you need $500 million just to even get started just means that this is going to be an enormous monstrosity in Times Square probably. And it's going to make that area even worse, which I'm not excited Wait, about. Well, think about the message that the government's sending. You're saying, you can't trust yourself enough. So we're going to make the decision for you about whether you can gamble or not. But you can gamble, but you could only do it in facilities operated by mega, mega rich corporations who bid 500 plus million dollars to get the right to facilitate your vice that I that we've now said you you shouldn't be able to, you know, like you shouldn't be able to indulge in most circumstances. It's just like a totally incoherent argument. I would say, though, if they're, they are going to do this, my pitch would be that, you know, um, Colin Jost and Pete Davidson bought uh, a defunct Staten Island ferry. I think we could do like a little riverboat gambling situation, put it on there. I think that would be a good facility for that and be good for Staten Island. You're setting more and more like a libertarian here. I this am on this stuff. I personally yeah. think like when it comes to individual vice, people should largely be able to make decisions on their own. I'm just looking at the locations that they're proposing for this. I mean, Ricky, you mentioned Times Square. Mm -hmm. That's insane. I'm not really sure that would. Just, I mean, it's it makes sense. I mean, it's one it's of the most tourist magnet. you know places. Yeah, in New York City, uh, they're thinking about putting one uh, at Coney Island, Bing Bong, and they're also thinking <laughs> about uh, putting one at City Field in Queens, 
which is stupid. That would be a bad one. I like Coney Island, uh, especially that's close to Brighton Beach. I mean, there's a great movie to be written about Russian mafia ties to whatever new casino comes there. You know, like I think there's just a lot happening in the Coney Island, Brighton Beach corridor. It's kind of far away too. If for some reason they like to put these things far away from like the major population. Yeah, center. usually. I, I don't know. It just makes no sense. Like, you know, you can go into a bar on every corner. That's not necessarily great for you, right? You can yeah. you can do all sorts of things that aren't good for you. You could smoke cigarettes on the streets. Like, why are we saying that this is the one thing that, you know, we're going to gatekeep in this it's way? A, it's a, it goes back to history. Like, you know, gambling, religious, a lot of religious leaders were always against it, just like with alcohol. And I think over time, people become more accepting of it. But the government has had such a stronghold in the regulation of this, which is just insane. Right. Yeah. And one major issue is that people that live directly in proximity to a casino tend to have way higher rates of gambling issues. But having it in a tourist center like Times Square, like you have people that are transient and coming in and out and they're not going to be there forever addicted and right. hooked on this but one I, place. But I bet so. if I lived above a McDonald's, I would eat more McDonald's. We're not banning McDonald's. Yeah, so exactly. it's like, I mean, you know, like, sure. I don't disagree. Yeah. And who lives in Times Square? Like, <laughs> <laughs> an incoming professor at Georgetown Law resigned this week saying the university wasn't a home for free speech. Ricky, we covered the Elia Shapiro fiasco a few months ago where he got shut down at UC Hastings. What's going on with the situation now? Yeah, so this goes back to January when um, Biden reaffirmed his commitment to appointing a black woman to the Supreme Court. And he ended up in a lot of fire um, and rightfully so at first for a really poorly worded, very cryptic tweet in which he suggested another Supreme Court nominee who he was saying. And essentially what he was trying to say is this is the best possible person. And the phrase that he used is, but because of Biden's quotas, we're going to end up with a, quote, lesser black woman, which obviously sounds terrible. Um, there were demands for him to be fired. There were sit-ins at Georgetown. And these are law students. So that's a little bit unfortunate, considering that he did apologize and say that this wording was just not what I was trying to say. It was a criticism of affirmative action. Um, of course, you can take issue with his with his point. But the idea that he should be put on leave and investigated was very controversial. Um, and so now, four months later, um, Georgetown has cleared him to start working um, at his post at the Constitution Center there um, on the basis that he wasn't yet in his role at the time when he tweeted it, which doesn't take four months to figure out. It's kind of unclear how that's uh, what they let him off on. And they essentially let him off on a technicality. And so Shapiro's response is that this isn't the workplace I want to work in, particularly because the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action at the law school has their their metric for whether you punish someone is not the intent of the speech, but what the effect was. And so that essentially means no matter what I say, if someone's offended, no matter how I meant to say it, I can get in trouble. And that's counter to the school's broader free speech mission. Um, and so Shapiro said, I'm... I, I'm a conservative in Georgetown Law School. I'm going to offend people. That's what I'm kind of there to do in a sense because he's there to be a different voice. And so he decided to walk away um, and is now going to work at the Manhattan Institute. And I think what's puzzling about this, which we mentioned when this controversy first came about, is that Georgetown itself has been selectively applying their own guidelines on protected speech. So there was this professor, Carol Christine Fair, who's at the Foreign Service School, and she commented on Kavanaugh in 2018, and this is what she had to say. She said, look at this chorus of entitled white men justifying a serial rapist's arrogated entitlement. All of them deserve miserable deaths while feminists laugh as they take their last gasps. Bonus, we castrate their corpses and feed them to swine. 
Yes. Jesus. Uh, she was not punished. She did not even apologize. She was strident. She was like very Draymond Green-esque, like just <laughs> like, fuck it. I'm just going to do what I want. <laughs> and the university didn't do anything about it. Uh, meanwhile, this guy has had to twist himself into pretzels. Don't love what he had to say, but hers is actually way more specific. Like you can <laughs> debate, you could debate what he had to say. Like you could say, was he saying that, you know, what you, we, we did that whole thing. Uh, and there definitely are people who were litigating every one of his words. Nobody's litigating what she said because we all know what she said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we know now. Um, <laughs> my biggest problem is like what you just said, Ricky. It it shouldn't be about the effect because then anything you say can be taken and turned into something offensive. It should be about the intent. And I think if the investigation or if there are rules there focused on the intent of your speech, then I would be all for this kind of thing. But if it's just about the effect, especially on a college setting, I mean, literally anything you say could trigger someone. And so I, I think that that's definitely problematic. Absolutely. And I think that example that you point out, Ravi, is um, really powerful because that makes me like cringe as a conservative but at the same time I of course believe that that's her free speech that the school should stand by right. and you need to put all of your personal values aside unless it's something that's directly like a threat which obviously that's not something that I think she's actually planning to do if she had some provable plans I'd say otherwise but um, I, I respect this move by Shapiro because I think getting let off on a technicality like that is kind of a load of crap and to say I just I'm not going to work for an institution that treated me this way and held me in limbo for four months like good for him. All right. So moving on, the concept of reparations for black Americans has never been as mainstream as it is today. It's no longer dismissed as the radical notion it was once thought to be in the pages of magazines, on the nightly news, on our social media timelines and in the halls of government. Reparations are openly discussed as a genuine policy proposal, one that California is already pursuing on its own. And Ricky, I want to start there in California. Tell us about this task force that's been created there. It's like the first of its kind. Yeah. So Newsom appointed them in 2020 to be a two year task force um, to look into reparations and how they could be implemented. And that's pretty historical, even though um, H.R. 40, which is the bill that would do that on a federal level, has been floated, I think, every single session since 1989. Um, this is the first time that someone's actually doing it. And so we just got a 500 page interim report from them, which is obviously hugely long. Um, and it is an interim report, but it doesn't really have a lot of uh, suggestions quite yet. It's more of like a historical analysis, which has a lot of interesting elements within it. But we're yet to really see an exact plan for them. Um, the full report is expected next July, but um, it makes a case for comprehensive reparations. Doesn't really yet say what those are going to be, but people are looking at it as potentially a model for a more federal program. And then this comes at the same time that Biden, who had said in the past that he'd be uh, open to looking into reparations, um, is getting pressure by uh, an open letter from civil rights leaders and religious groups saying, like, get a move on it. But essentially, he has been uh, back and forth throughout his whole career on it and has privately reportedly told lawmakers not to expect much. So this seems to be the the local level, the best thing that we've had so far. It's really odd to me that California is doing this report because if I can think back, historically speaking, I believe they were a free state. I don't think slavery was ever in California, but I do understand the, the, the want to look into this further and see 
what type of proposals, if any, could be pushed. Um, Robbie, I'm curious to get your your opinion on it, because there is a historical precedent for the American government to give out reparations to a particular group that it that they wronged. I mean, Native Americans received uh, billions of dollars in reparations. Of course, they were given land, but obviously that situation didn't go as great for all of those different tribes. Japanese Americans received reparations for the internment camps that they were uh, placed in during World War II. So there is a precedent for this. But I but doing this with the African-American community on this on that scale would be something way bigger than any of that. Yeah, I think the, the core question that I come back to is what is somebody's responsibility for things that past generations did, including their own relatives and, and you know, uh, you know, their ancestors. And there's, I, I forget who said this, but there's this saying, you know, it, it may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility. And that's how I think about the larger question of America's like terrible history with race. And because of that, I'm willing to consider so many different possibilities for how we redress not just slavery, but reconstruction. And then, you know, so many policies that are so deeply mis- misunderstood, like the FHA loans and redlining that have effects till this day. And, you know, we could go through the statistics. They're pretty dramatic about the differences in outcomes and wealth in this country based on race. But in order to implement anything, you need a certain level of buy-in, right, just politically to pass it. And then you just need people to, you know, if you're going to be taking significant resources away from some people because of some history that they didn't themselves play a part in but may have benefited from, in order to pry that loose from them, you need a certain level of buy-in. And to me, that's where I, I come down where people like Coleman Hughes are, which is to say, all right, we all agree that something should be done to help people who are worse off in this society and that there's a racial correlation that's super strong and not accidental in this country as to where most of the wealth is. But then what do you do? His answer is, well, you can get at so much of this by um, tying solutions to economics than to the history itself uh, and you could accomplish so much more. You can get more political buy-in to do that. And I think this dovetails with some of the things we were talking about with affirmative action when we covered it a few months ago. Is like, to me, that's more politically achievable. It's probably easier to implement. And then that also means that somebody who's not just a descendant of slaves, but maybe somebody who's a Somali refugee or somebody who's struggling in this country or a Mexican immigrant or something, they could benefit from those policies too. Yeah. And when we talk about the price tag for something like this, I think some people tend to think that it's incalculable, which I don't think that's true. I mean, there's a lot of good records that's been kept on, you know, the amount of slaves that existed. And of course, like what, you know, what their labor was assigned to. I think $3 billion was the value assigned to the physical bodies of enslaved people in 18 right before the Civil War, that would be around 104 billion today if you account for inflation, which I think was at zero percent at the time. Uh, there's a famous scene from the West Wing. I'm sure you remember where they attempt to calculate how much you would owe African Americans who were the descendants of slaves, and the number they came up with, and this was like from the late 90s, was 1.7 trillion, which sounds like a lot. Uh, but when you consider that we spent more than five trillion just last year alone because of the pandemic, it's not that impossible of an idea. I, I guess the biggest thing is would direct cash payments to African-Americans who were the descendants of slaves actually do anything to fix a lot of the problems that many people in impoverished African-American communities face today? It's almost like two questions, right? It's like, is it effective? And then is it a question of just moral desert, right? So some people would argue it doesn't even matter whether it's effective, they deserve it, right? So for me, I'm like, all right, maybe there's just an argument that people deserve it. I just, for me, the practicalities get in the way. 
you know, there's this essay from 2014 from Ta-Nehisi Coates that I think so many people have litigated ever since. And I think you can come out saying, I'm not sure I'm for reparations, but still read that essay and say he makes a pretty strong case that the wealth generation in this country and where wealth resides is like a pretty dark stain on this country. Like who's rich, who's not. It's, you know, there's really significant clear lines to the practice of slavery and so many race-based policies ever since. One of the issues with this conversation to me is that there's some sort of assumption that we're going to right the wrong through doing this. And it feels like a band-aid solution. And I, I mean, there's so many... Um, logistical questions about how, how, like what you asked, how do you quantify? Like there's estimates from 17 billion to 97 trillion. They're all over the place. Who gets it? Like, is it based on direct uh, heritage? How do you trace that if your ancestors were enslaved and you don't have it? What if you're mixed race? What if you're an immigrant who's of African descent? Um, who pays for them? Is it from the families in the South or is it from the taxpayers more generally? How does that impact the culture? Or does this open the doors for more aggrieved groups to look for reparations? And I think, you know, I I have to put aside my my personal idealism of not liking an activist government and say, like, our government actively did something pretty terrible. And also, we do have an activist government that spends ridiculous sums of money all the time. And like, I can't stop that. And so I'm not satisfied by the idea of giving people checks and thinking that this is somehow going to fix things. I think it's a band-aid solution. I think it almost minimizes just how profound this issue is. And I think, you know, ultimately, if there is a proposal that is coherent, that is refined, and that says, here's a way that we can invest particularly in education and in the futures of people, I would be in favor of that given the the context that we've all inherited. And that Coleman Hughes essay, he basically talks about how, you know, we're basically trying a lot of things. And if you look at the California report, what they're floating often isn't even reparations, right? And often I see this in politics, it's like so political that people are like, they're branding something as reparations. And you're seeing like towns passing reparations around the country and things like this. I think Asheville had, North Carolina had some announcement on that. And it's like, often when you read the fine print, you're like, this isn't actually reparations. This is stuff that people are already trying uh, in various forms. And so I'm super skeptical that anything major happens either in California or anywhere else. Uh, But I do think the exercise is helpful. I, I do think that this report, when you read it, like California, is reckoning with its history and race. Like you talked about the fact that they didn't, they weren't a slave holding state, but they did have their own issues with redlining and things like that. And I think the report is a really good historical record that catalogs that. Yeah, I definitely think something needs to be done. I mean, if you broke it, you have to fix it. And so I think one of the biggest problems, uh, probably one of the greatest mistakes this country made beyond just allowing slavery in the first place was the failures of reconstruction. There were there were things that they, they could have fixed this problem a long time ago. And so whenever we have this conversation about reparations, it just reminds me about how slavery was talked about for the first century of this country's existence. They just kept kicking the can down the road right. and it just made it worse and worse and worse to something like the Civil War was needed. And we've done the same with reparations. If we would have addressed this with the whole 40 acres and a mule concept, mm-hmm. you know, right after the Civil War, if we would have, you know, if more African-Americans were able to take care, uh, take advantage of like the Homestead Acts and things like that in the late 19th century, then we probably wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. But because we keep kicking this can down the road, now we still have to have this conversation. And now the figure has grown so much bigger. And now it's become much more complicated to even pinpoint who gets what. And my whole thing is I would always I would totally be for reparations if they came in the form of like either land 
and or and or education grants, something that would actually address the real problems because direct cash payments doesn't really work on a fundamental level. Yeah, and I agree with you because I think it's so much easier to go from the concept to the execution and an example like the Japanese internment camp where you have people that are still alive who were interred, who experienced that physically, who were given money like that is pretty simple to implement. And, um, you know, I didn't don't think it fixed the fact that it happened in the first place, but at least something was done to try to compensate. But I agree, like today, it's just so complicated. It's so convoluted. It's so difficult. And I think because it's become so um, kind of entrenched in every facet of society, we just need a larger fix than a check. We, If it means investment and in education, I'm a little more skeptical of land because I, I'm curious where the land the government would give people would come from and how people would end up in strange pockets here and there um, and how that would develop naturally. But in terms of education investment, like I, that's something I'm completely sympathetic to. I'd take the land. If, if somebody <laughs> offered me the land, I, where? I would take the land. Uh, like <laughs> Wyoming or something, you know? Like, <laughs> Just move next to Kanye, you know. Following a string of devastating mass shootings, senators like Chris Murphy says there's real hope for passing bipartisan gun reform. So I've never been part of negotiations as serious as these. There are more Republicans at the table talking about changing our gun laws and investing in mental health than at any time since Sandy Hook. Now, I've also been part of many failed negotiations in the past, so I'm sober-minded about our chances. Um, we are talking about a meaningful change in our gun laws, a major investment in mental health, perhaps some money for school security that would make a difference. Robbie, we've heard this story time and time again about Congress trying to do something about gun reform in this country. What do you think? Is this going to be any different this time around? Yeah, I was confused by uh, Senator Murphy's statements because he he did mention background checks there, but in, in another statement said that you know, expanded background checks were not on the table. So I think the improved background checks, uh, he's got this narrow language around improving the existing system, but not necessarily expanding it. You know, if you look at polling from the American public, the American public overwhelmingly supports expanded background checks. To me, like I would vote for this stuff if I were in the Senate. Like it, any if you can save just one life through like a red flag law or whatever, that's helpful. But I do worry that passing this super incremental piecemeal stuff is going to create the perception that we're you know, making a major dent in a problem, and I'm not sure that we are. I think incremental, smaller reforms are the best way to go about it personally because I think that there's actually bipartisan agreement on some aspects of gun, gun control reform, but not on the broader packages that end up getting pushed because, you know, there you can have the most extreme uh, proposal in the same package as the most reasonable one. And there's actually pretty popular Republican support, at least within the populace, for some sort of reform. And I, th I do believe this is an example of where our bipartisan system just really goes awry because politicians are not incentivized to follow their voters on this. But 85% of Republicans support like investing in preventing mentally ill people from getting guns, 77% for universal background checks, and 70% for red flag laws. So people are not as um, stubborn about this as I think they're made out to be. And so I think if you actually parse out the incremental things and you say, here's one specific reform, this is one dent that we can make, that might be the most effective way to get people to actually be answerable to the voters that voted for them and not to the NRA or the the gun movement as a whole. Yeah, the House passed a bill uh, just yesterday, Wednesday, which would prohibit the sale of semi-automatic rifles to people under the age of 21. It would also ban the sale of magazines that hold more than 15 rounds of ammunition. I don't 
think you need more than 15 rounds of ammunition at one time to kill a deer, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, it also would establish stricter requirements for regulating the storage of guns in homes. And that also is like, I'm not really sure how you go about implementing something like that, yeah, like how people tough. store guns in their well, own I homes. Well, I think it's that you could be potentially, I might be wrong in this, but you could be potentially prosecuted if it's yeah. found that you were irresponsible. Yeah, that, that makes more sense. But it looks like that's just not gonna pass the Senate. Yeah, and I think a lot, we can parse through the data on each one of those provisions, but my sense is there's overwhelming support from the American public uh, on most of the things that you talked about, I think. And especially, you know, there's some things that Murphy has taken off the table, like universal background checks, that there's, you know, as you, you, you talked about this data, Ricky, 77% of Republicans and 91% of Democrats. And he's saying they're not going to expand background checks. They're already taking that off the table. So that already we're saying, all right, we're not going to follow the will of the people on this kind of stuff. And so to me, I think I'm a little bit more radical on this stuff. I like a proposal from uh, Don Beyer, who floated, uh, you know, Democratic congressman for Virginia, floated a thousand percent, I think, tax on certain, I think, you know, I'm going to try to use my words carefully here, I think like military style assault rifles. I think it's mainly aimed at the AR-15, and that could pass without going through the filibuster because it would be a budget maneuver, which is this provision called reconciliation in the Senate. You could pass that. I would vote for that. Yeah, and I still can't fathom why anyone would be against universal background checks. I don't. I don't see how. I mean, when you say seventy-seven percent of, of Republicans support it, I mean, like, what what is the argument against universal background checks? I just don't understand it. I think people are just like you know the NRA and and other supporters of their sort of ideology believe that any regulation on firearms is you know like basically they they want to only advance they don't want to retreat and so i think like they're they have had a history of not supporting anything meaningful in gun reform uh and i think the debate within their circles now is do we give a little bit so that the politics simmer down which makes me very skeptical of the politics of this yeah i think also people because there are extreme proposals about confiscating guns and stuff like that people are afraid of universal background checks that they could become like a gun registry of sorts because you're putting yourself in front of the government to say, okay, here, I have this gun. And then one day it could be taken away. And I think the way that you build trust with people is saying, no, you have this right. These are how we're going to make sure that it's given to the right people. And we're not going to do X, Y, Z down the road. I think that's where the psychology of it is. Um, but also, I mean, I'm not against universal background checks, but I, I understand this. I mean, it might seem paranoid, but there is a fear that because there are people talking about confiscating guns. Well, if you're in some sort of government system, then they're going to be knocking on your door when that day comes. I think that's where that's where the thought is. And I think you need some middle ground pragmatism because there's no way that we're going to take. I feel like they can already do that. Though. I feel like this is the government system arguments. I'm like, we're in every system. Like they've got a, they've got our photos. They've got our ID. They know where we live. You know, to me, I'm like, all right, I'd rather it be harder to get a gun than to get Sudafed, like or alcohol, like. You know, like it should be harder. Uh, and in a lot of states, it's easier to get a gun than to get those things. And that's kind of silly to me. Well, Ravi, it's Thursday. That means it is time for a possibly radical idea uh, from you. What do you got for us this week? Well, this, I think this is a smaller idea than previous weeks. And the genesis of this idea comes, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a trainer at a gym and she's leaving. And I asked her, you know, where are you going next? And she was like, you know what? I've got a non-compete agreement. I can't go to another gym for a period of time. And I was thinking to myself, well, all right, that's interesting. Non-compete agreement in the fitness industry. Where else should we see non-compete agreements? Because I'm not even sure I want a non-compete in that context. But I was thinking about our elected officials. I'm like, wait a minute. 
the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems we have in places like where I live in New York, but in elsewhere is that you, you listeners and you too may have the experience of having somebody just get elected to office and you can immediately hear them or, or see them positioning themselves for the next office. In some cases, they just turn around and run right away for the next office. And what means is people are just not focused on the job that they've been elected to do. There's a saying that every councilman looks in the mirror and sees the next mayor, every mayor sees a governor, governor sees senator, senator sees president, president sees two-term president. You know, it's like everybody's just, you know, uh, everybody's thinking about the next thing and they're not focused on the constituents. And to me, I would, if I were a city or a state, I would play around with passing a law that says, all right, non-compete, you become a state rep, state senator, whatever, you have to do it for a certain amount of years before you run for another office. You could certainly leave and do something not in politics, but you can't run for another office for a period of time and maybe a little bit of period after that. So you don't run while you're in office because that's a huge time suck. And you could also put within that non-compete things like not lobbying, uh, the very government that you're a part of, or you know, we we did an interview which we're going to air in a certain um, in a couple weeks uh, with a, a New York Times transit reporter who talks about the MTA officials in New York then going to work for the companies that are contracting with MTA and how corrupt that is. So you could put all this in. So to me, non-compete agreement for politicians. I have no pushback to that, to be honest. My only thing about that is, like, let's say you have a young person who runs for a local council position and is super popular and super charismatic and everyone loves them. And then they can't run for the next incremental office and they haven't really developed a career before. And so now they're just there and you say, okay, go earn your money elsewhere and then you can come back. And then someone takes their spot and they've lost all their relevance in the in the culture. Like that's that's my one question is how, I think there is definitely what you're talking about. Like I, I probably more cases of people just being more worried about their election than than their constituents. But how how do you make sure that you're not preventing like a rising star from ascending up the ladder and becoming an important person on a on a state level, on a national level. I think the good metaphor for this is the one and done phenomenon in the NCAA, you know, where it used to be like Michael Jordan, I forget how many years he did, two or three years at UNC. It was good for him. It was good for the sport of basketball. And the metaphor here is the sport of basketball, quote unquote, or for at least for college basketball, would be the equivalent of the function of New York City government or, you know, Nashville, because I use New York City all the time. Uh, Nashville Metro Council, right? It needs to function really well. And in a certain way, you almost want to incentivize people to stay in the work to do that job really well and not constantly be thinking about the next thing. I think government uh, works better when you incentivize people in some cases, keep them in their jobs for some serious period of time. Yeah, you but know? imagine if LeBron was forced to go to college, you know, instead of being able to just go straight to the league. Well, know? in my metaphor, he could go straight to the league. So I'm not saying you can't just run for mayor. If you're, if you are the LeBron James of politics, you just run for mayor, you know, but if you commit to the voters that you're going to do a certain job to me, I think it's the, the right of the voters to say the condition of taking this job, because it's not like you're saying now you're in it. And I didn't tell you, now you have to stay. It's more like, if you are going to take this job, you must stay in it for a certain amount of years. And How? if you want to run for it, you must stay. So what is a certain amount of years? Is it a term? I would say my non-compete would be something the equivalent of, you must serve out your entire term. And if you don't, you can't run for another office. Uh, two is, I would maybe add uh, some provision that you can't run for the next office while you're in that office. Now that's more extreme, you know, negotiations, but like, uh, basically, what I'm trying to prevent is somebody losing focus from the job that the taxpayers are paying them to do. Because I could tell you, as somebody who used to coach these candidates, they are not spending their time 
on their actual jobs often. I think there was- Yeah, I can believe that. There was this year, I think it was the year that de Blasio was retiring where there was some insane percentage of city council members who were not showing up to their hearings anymore, either because they were running for other office or they moved on or whatever. A lot of them became lobbyists. A lot of them ran for other office successfully, some of them unsuccessfully or whatever, but it was a lot of energy that wasn't spent on making the city better. I would say if you're in your first term, you should be barred for running for like any office while you're in that first term. And then I would also I would also say like a non-compete to like lobbying for like a certain amount of years once you get out of that office. I would I would agree to both of those. Yeah, and, and voters can selectively apply this. You could say these are the types of uh, elected offices that we want to keep you in. And then here are some other ones where maybe we don't care as much. Every politician wants to be president yeah. at some point for in their sure. career, you know, yeah. which I don't get it. It's a terrible job. Well, thank you all for watching and listening to us today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.